If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25, this is the last sermon in our series on the life of Abraham. We started this series back on January the 2nd, and we've been marching through the book of Genesis, beginning in Genesis 11, and we're up to Genesis 25 today as we finish this series that we've entitled, Finding Faith in a Fallen World. If you haven't been with us, this is a good week because this is kind of a summary. We're going to look back at the life of Abraham and talk about some of the things that we have learned by viewing and learning about the life of Abraham. Abraham has had a major impact on our world. We're talking about him these 4,000 years after he lived, and so obviously he had a major impact. But if you think about it, he's a major player in at least three world religions. In Islam, he is a prophet that precedes Muhammad. In Judaism, he is a founding father of the faith and of the covenant with God. And in Christianity, if you read the New Testament, Abraham is referred to as the father of all who believe. And so what that means is as we sit here today, there are 4.3 billion people who adhere to a religion where Abraham is a major player in their religion. So if you're going to understand world culture, you need to understand a little bit about the life of Abraham. And so I'm going to read Genesis 25, just verses 7 and 8. This is where Abraham passes away. Then I'm going to pray for us. And then we want to look back over the life of Abraham and just think about some of the things that we learn from his life. So if you would hear now God's word, Genesis chapter 25, verses 7 and 8. Hear now God's word. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving these accounts of the life of your servant Abraham. And as we look at his life, I pray that you would grow our faith in you and that you would make us better servants of the one true God. And Father, I ask that you'd be willing to do that even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, if you have an order of worship on the back, there are some sermon notes, and you see there, in fact, that I have outlined 10 lessons from the life of Abraham. And you might be thinking a sermon's only supposed to have three points, but I figured if next week I have to preach shorter because we've got a congregational meeting, then we can cram two or three sermons in. To the, no, I'm just kidding. These are short thoughts because we've already been through the life of Abraham and we're just thinking back about his life. As I went back through the biblical account of Abraham, I really tried to think of what would Abraham say to us? What would he emphasize from his life? And the first thing that I think Abraham would say to us is this, God changes people. God changes people. Think about it. Just think about, the, about Abraham. We met him in Genesis 11 when he was 75 years old. And all his life of those 75 years, all Abraham knew was his country where he lived, 
his kindred, his family that he lived with, and his culture that he grew up in. You can read in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 2, where we're told that Abraham lived with his father across the Euphrates River, and for those 75 years, he worshipped or served other gods. He was a pagan. He was not a follower of the one true God. And then think about the account. All of a sudden, this guy who's 75 years old, who all his life, and as long as anybody could remember his family's life, had served multiple gods, all of a sudden this guy who's 75 years old says, wait a minute, I think there's only one true God. And I'm going to leave my country that I've always known and my kindred, my family, and I'm going to go to a place that this one true God is showing me. And people had to say, Abraham, you're crazy. If you leave here, all the, the stuff that our family has accumulated, you're walking away from that. The land that we have, you're walking away from the protection of your clan. Everything that provided security at this day and time, Abraham's walking away. Now, why in the world would he ever do that? Well, Abraham says it's because the one true God appeared to him and spoke to him and changed him. Abraham tells us that God changes people. I wonder today, who are you praying to see change? Maybe it's some family member that you really want to see become a servant or a follower of the one true God. Maybe it's somebody at work or a boss that you have. Maybe you're praying for your own heart that you want to be changed as a person. Abraham shows us that the one true God changes people. And he shows us not to give up because it's never too late. Abraham's adventure does not even begin until he is 75 years old. So as we look at the life of Abraham, we have to see that God changes people. Secondly, I believe Abraham would tell us that there are blessings for obeying God. There are blessings for obeying God. In Genesis 12, we looked at the story of Abraham. And God says to Abraham, if you will leave your country and your kindred and the culture that you grew up in, then I will bless you. I'll make you a great nation. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing to other people. And through your offspring, all nations of the world will be blessed. Well, of course, Abraham is obedient to God. And we see that God did make his name great, as we've already talked about this morning. And through his offspring, the Lord Jesus, all nations of the world have been blessed by this descendant of Abraham. We saw again in Genesis 22 and verse 16 where God says to Abraham after he did not withhold Isaac from God. Remember God says, because you have not withheld your son, your only son from me, I will bless you. Now that's something we don't talk about a whole lot because we're afraid somebody's going to think we're one of these health, wealth, prosperity, gospel kinds of churches. And we're trying to just be a biblical church. 
But I think it's clear in the Bible that there are blessings that come with obedience. And the covenant, if you read the first five books of the Bible, it says there are actually curses that come along with disobedience. Sin has consequences. And there are blessings for obedience. Now, it may not be the blessings that you want. We don't get to choose them. I'm not saying if you do what God says, you're always going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's not what the Scripture says. But what God sets out as a good father that we've been singing about this morning is what we would do for any of our children. He sets out the safe path. This is how life was designed to work. This is how life works best. And so there is a blessing that comes from walking in God's ways. And we see that in the life of Abraham. There is a blessing that comes from resting one day in seven that you just don't get if you work all seven days. Life just works better when we do not lie to one another. When we don't kill one another, life works better. There are blessings that come from faithfulness in our marriages that we do not experience if we're not faithful in our marriages. So there are blessings that come from obeying God. And so we just remember that from the life of Abraham because we see it so clearly, his dealing with the consequences of sin and then his also receiving blessing when he walks in God's ways. So as we walk with God, when obedience is hard, when our culture calls us to go in a different way from God's way, it's a good reminder for us from the life of Abraham to remember that there are blessings for obeying God. That's the second thing. Number three. God does not require his people to be perfect in order to be a part of the people of God or for God to use them. We've already been talking about that this morning. Josh covered it well in the confession of sin, that we don't have to be perfect in order to be in the people of God or for God to use us. Think about that with Abraham. Abraham is in, right? He is in heaven. I think of Jesus in Matthew chapter 8, down there around verse 11. He says, many will come from the east and from the west and will sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God, right? So Jesus says Abraham's in. The apostle Paul, you can read in uh, Romans 4 and Galatians 3, he talks about Abraham is justified or made right with God because of his faith. I think of James chapter 2, James says that Abraham's in. The writer to Hebrews has Abraham in that great hall of fame of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham's in, okay? He's there. And God has used him in a mighty way. We've already outlined that and talked about that. But if you've been with us in the sermon series, you have to remember that Abraham was broken and messed up. He was not always perfect. Even though he is in heaven, he is in the people of God, he's been used mightily by God. But man, he messed up a lot. And in some really big ways... You might remember that he gave away his wife as his sister 
and allowed her to become a part of not just one, but two different harems where God has to intervene to protect her. Remember Pharaoh in Egypt in Genesis 12 and Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20. And after 10 years of waiting on God to provide them with a child, Abraham and Sarah get impatient with God and try to get the blessings of God in their own way outside of God's plan for marriage. Although it was a way that was acceptable in the culture that they lived in, it was contrary to the way God had set things up. And, and Sarah gave her handmaiden to Abraham and they have a child together. And it creates all sorts of problems in their marriage, in their family, tensions that come. We see the consequences of sin. And then Sarah, who's jealous of Hagar, begins to mistreat her handmaiden. Really, the, the word there means uh, she abused her. And Abraham turns a blind eye to it. That's the best treatment of it. You could argue that he actually encourages the abuse. He says, what's the problem with your hand? Is she not still your servant? Handle it. And then Sarah mistreats and abuses her handmaiden, Hagar. After 25 years of waiting to have a child, Sarah, when she's told that she will have a son at 90 years old, she laughs in God's face. And then when he says, why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for God? She lies and said, no, I didn't laugh. <laughs> He's like, yeah, you did. You laughed. You see, the point is these folks were far from perfect. And that's so encouraging to us because God does not require his people to be perfect in order to be part of the people of God or for God to use them. As Josh quoted from the Jesus Storybook Bible, we just have to see that we need him a lot. And we confess that. And we look to his provision for sin in the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. People get this book, the Bible, wrong all the time. Abraham is not a hero. The Bible is not a book of heroes. God is the only hero in the Bible. The Bible seems to go out of its way to show the sin of every person that we might begin to elevate. Because the only hero in the Bible is God. And this Bible is a record of the grace and love of God for people who do not deserve it. That's the whole point. For people who don't even seek it. For people who continually resist it. To people who fail to appreciate it even after we've been saved by it. That's the whole point of this book. The Bible teaches us that the very best of humans are horribly flawed. That we have trouble breaking out of the brokenness of our own culture. That we have trouble rising above the blind spots and the times in which we live. That we're always wrestling, trying to escape the selfishness and sinfulness of our own hearts. Yet, God keeps moving toward his people. He keeps speaking to them. He keeps helping them. He keeps saving them. He keeps rescuing them. He keeps his promises to them, despite the fact that we don't deserve it. That's called grace. 
That's what we mean when we say unmerited favor. <laughs> we say that. We don't know what it means. It means we don't deserve God's kindness and love and mercy. That's the good news of the Bible. So do not think that God requires his people to be perfect in order to be part of the people of God or even to be used by God. In fact, the only people God uses are broken and messed up people. Because that's the only kind of people there are. So I don't know what voice you hear in your head. Maybe you hear that voice, you shouldn't even be here in church today. Boy, I hear that voice every week, the voice of the accuser. Who says, you're the last person who needs to stand up and talk to people about what they ought to be doing or how they ought to live their lives. Which is why I so often pray the way that I do. Lord, please use even the lips of a foolish preacher, the sinful lips of a foolish preacher to accomplish your purposes. But thank God we don't have to be perfect in order to be in the people of God or used by the people of God. Number four, we also learn from the life of Abraham that God blesses those who seek peace and who depend on God. Boy, that was a lesson for our day, wasn't it? Oh, that we would have more peacemakers, people who would seek peace. Remember in Genesis 13, we saw that Abraham and his nephew Lot had become so prosperous that their herdsmen were fighting with one another because the land couldn't sustain all their flocks and herds and all that God had blessed them with. And Abraham goes to Lot and says, let there be no strife between us because we're kinsmen. Oh, that we would have that attitude, even within the, the people of God. Let there be no strife between us, because we're children of God. We're brothers and sisters. Abraham says, let there be no strife between us, because we're kinsmen. And Abraham and Lot agree to separate. And remember the story. Abraham allows Lot to choose where he wants to go with his flocks and herds. And Abraham will take whatever's left. Abraham is the, the senior person in this, um, in this culture. The older man would have been the one to have the first choice. And, and, and Abraham gives that up. He allows Lot to choose. Remember, Lot looks out at the land. And he chooses that fertile part that looked like the garden of the Lord. It looked like Eden to him. And he went and took the best part of the land. How did Abraham do that? How did he allow Lot to make the choice? Well, Abraham is depending on God to provide for him. And God does bless him in that. It's not that Abraham was great. It's that he had faith in a God who was great. And Abraham believed, he had faith, to use the language of our series, that God could protect him, and that God could provide for him, and that in God, Abraham had all he needed. And as a result, watch this, I'm turning a corner on you, because he believed God could protect him, and that God could provide for him, and that in God he had all he needed, that means Abraham did not have to cling to the things of this world. <laughs> you know, that's why we do that, right? Because we're not real sure God's going to be there for us. And so I want to have God and enough put away for a rainy day. I want to have God and the best part of the land. 
Abraham let Lot choose because Abraham had a sense that if God was for him, then it didn't matter what Lot chose. We don't usually have that kind of response, do we? We, like Lot, get so focused on the things of this world, focused on what is seen as opposed to what is unseen. And Lot looks to that fertile land and to being on his own away from his, his uncle Abraham. And he looks to being more prosperous. And his hope is that those things can give him what in actuality only God can give him. Remember, he looked at it. It looked to him as if the garden of the Lord. It was like Eden. And what we learned from Genesis 13 was you cannot have the garden of the Lord without the Lord. What we learned from this part of Abraham's life is that you will not long enjoy satisfaction or significance or security apart from God. But that doesn't stop us from looking, does it? We all look to something to give us those things. What do you look to? Take some time to think about that this week. Because Abraham teaches us to find those things in the one true God. Number five. Abraham also teaches us that God empowers those who depend on him. Remember in Genesis 14, when Lot is captured by these four kings who combine their forces and take Lot and all of Sodom? And God empowers Abraham to take 318 men. And remember, he's 85 years old at this point. And he goes and he rescues Lot and all of Sodom. And we talked about how we as Christians... You know, we struggle when things are not going well for us. But we can also struggle when we have successes. In fact, as a church, sometimes we deal with success worse than we deal with failure. We deal with success worse than we deal with persecution. At least when times are hard, we turn to God. And we saw Abraham in that success meet Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, and to give a tithe, 10% of all he gained in the spoils of war. And the king of Sodom says to him, keep the stuff you gained, but give me back my people, which was the custom of the day. And you remember what Abraham said. He said, I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything of yours, lest you say I made Abraham rich. Abraham depended on God, and God empowered him. I wonder, do we depend on God? We talked last week in Genesis 24 about how can I know if I'm depending on God? You remember what, remember what the test was? How can I know if I'm depending on God? And we said, well, there are a lot of ways to know, but one way is this. How often do you pray? Prayer is a recognition of our dependence on God. If you pray without ceasing like Thessalonians says to do, then you're probably depending on God without ceasing. If you pray just every once in a while when things seem out of control, then you're probably only dependent on God every once in a while when things seem out of your control. But Abraham teaches us that God empowers those who depend on him. So we've asked the Lord to show us our dependence on him, which is a scary prayer to pray sometimes. But we're reassured that God empowers those who depend on him. Number six, 
God's people sometimes doubt, but God reassures his people. Do you remember we looked at this in Genesis 15? I loved that chapter. Remember after 10 years of not having a child and failing in these other ways, Adam doubts that he's ever, I mean, uh, Abraham doubts he will ever have an heir. And God is so kind. Remember, he takes him outside and he says, look up at the stars, count them if you can, so shall your offspring be. And we read there in Genesis 15 and verse 6 where Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Very important concept in the New Testament. We'll talk about it in a moment. So Abraham believes God. But then after he believes God and it's credited to him as righteousness, Abraham still asks the question, but how can I know? Abraham still has doubts even after he's been credited with righteousness. And remember what God did. He told Abraham to go and to find animals and cut them in half. And that's foreign to us. But Abraham would know exactly what God is doing. In our day, if we have doubts about someone keeping their word, then we get them to sign a contract, right? We get it in writing. Well, in this day, they would make a covenant, literally cut a covenant. And in the ancient Near East, that's the way they made a deal. They would enter a covenant with one another. And they're basically cutting these animals in half and then walking between them in order to say, if I fail to do what I promise to do, then may I be split apart. May I be cut in half like these animals. May I be food for the birds and for the wild animals if I do not keep my word. So Abraham has to be thinking, oh no, I'm entering into a covenant with God, and if I fail, if I doubt God again, I'm going to have to pay. Because the custom in the ancient Near East was the lesser party always walked through the animals. Sometimes a king would walk through as well, but many times they just had the lesser party walk through. And you remember what happened. Abraham did not walk through the animals. God alone passed through the pieces. And he made a covenant with Abraham saying, if I fail, I will pay. And if you fail, I will pay. And that foreshadowing the Lord Jesus Christ who was cut off from the land of the living, that covenant language of cutting. Because of our transgressions, he pays with his life and is torn apart. God reassures his people that we can trust him to keep his promises because he's so gracious. He's so trustworthy. He does what no other king will do. And that's why we can trust him to keep his promises and to do what he says he'll do. It's okay to have doubts. God's people have doubts sometimes. Abraham's in, he had doubts. But we have even more reason than Abraham to trust in God. Because he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things. You can trust him with your doubts. Number seven, we learned from the life of Abraham that nothing is too hard for God. 
Nothing is too hard for God. We already talked about God changed Abraham when he was 75 years old. And about how God gave 85-year-old Abraham victory over the combined forces of four kings with only 318 men. Of course, you'll remember Abraham has a child when he's 100 years old and his wife is 90. And when Sarah laughed at the thought of having a child when she was 90, remember God asked her, Is anything too hard for the Lord? There is a person in my house, I won't name who, who has written on their mirror, Is anything too hard for the Lord? What a great thing to be reminded of on our mirror. I don't know what it is that you face today. I don't know what your worries or concerns are that you brought in here. I don't know what you worry about when you're stopped at a traffic light on the way home or when you lay your head down on the pillow. I don't know what it is you'll face today. But God asks, is anything too hard for the Lord? You can trust him with those things. An eighth thing that we learned, I didn't really want to include this one, but I think to be honest about the scripture, we got to be honest about this. Number eight, God is just not in a hurry. <laughs> Did you notice that from the story of Abraham? God is just not in a hurry. He doesn't even call Abraham till he's 75. And then he promises him land and offspring and through his offspring to bless all nations. And it's 75. It's not till Abraham is 100 that he finally has a baby. He has to wait 25 years after God makes that promise. And as for the land, remember, they didn't even get any land in the promised land until Genesis 23 when Sarah dies at 127 years old. It's 62 years after God promised to give them land. And then it's just a little field with a cave in it. It's 400 years before the descendants of Abraham take the land. God's just not in a hurry. And then Abraham's offspring, through whom all nations of the world are blessed, of course, that's the Lord Jesus. Paul makes that connection for us in Galatians. But it's another 2,000 years after the promise is made to Abraham before that happens. God... It's just not in a hurry. I wonder, what are you waiting for God to do? I must tell you, his timing is seldom our timing. But God's timing is perfect. And how can the imperfect find fault with the perfect? So I call you to wait on the Lord. Oh, certainly cry out to him. Present before him the desires of your heart. But just know, God is just not in a hurry. Number nine. God's people pass on the truths of the faith in their household. We saw this in so many ways. Remember in Genesis 17 where Abraham applies the sign of the covenant circumcision to all those in his household? We just read that. Remember, yeah, he applied the sign of the covenant to all those. I would imagine there were probably questions by those. In. Now, why are we cutting the foreskins off of our penises now that we're grown? Why are we doing this? And Abraham would have to communicate with those in his household 
why they're taking this drastic step. Because the one true God has revealed himself. And there had to have been conversations, right? And then we see the results of those conversations. Remember in Genesis 24 where Abraham sends his servant to go and find a wife for Isaac? And we were so amazed that this servant that had been serving in his household prays to God three times in that text. And every time he's using covenant language of God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. And, and this servant depends on God and looks to God when he's far, 400 miles from Abraham. And he depends on God and he looks to God and he prays to God and he relies on God. He gives the glory to God when he finds Rebecca. He's outspoken about God to those around him because that servant had grown up in the household with Abraham. If you keep reading in Genesis 25, when Isaac takes Rebekah as his wife and she cannot have kids, Isaac prays for her. And then she conceives Jacob and Esau. How did Isaac know to do that? Because he had seen Abraham do it so many times. I wonder, are we passing on the truths of the faith to those in our household? We must be faithful to do so. It's been said so many times, I can't even find who first said the quote, the church is always one generation from extinction, and that's true. We must pass down the faith to those in our household. One last thing about the life of Abraham. Number 10. Perhaps the most important. I would say this is the most important thing. So if I lost you, come on back. This is the last thing. We are made right with God by our faith in God. And our faith is what keeps us going. We're made right with God. We've already said we're not perfect. But we're made right with God by our faith in God. And our faith in him is what keeps us going. Man, this is the consistent testimony of the New Testament. If there's one thing the New Testament picks up on and reminds us about with Abraham, it is his faith in God, which is why we named this series Finding Faith in a Fallen World. Romans 4 is an entire chapter when the Apostle Paul is giving an example of why justification, being made right with God, is by faith. He gives Abraham as the example. And you may say, okay, well, Abraham was made right with God. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it's credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's made right with God that way. Are we sure that's true for us? And the apostle Paul answers that question in Romans 4 and verse 23. He says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake, for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So that's not just true for Abraham, that faith just made him right with God. But faith is how we're made right with God. 
We're made right by our faith in God. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3, when the church forgot the power of the Holy Spirit and began to do things in their own strength, do you remember what he said to them? In Galatians 3, beginning in verse 5, he says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? That sounds like a very New Testament concept, right? But look where he goes as an example. Verse 6, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. That we, if we have faith in the Lord Jesus, are actually children of Abraham. And if you read all the way down to the end of Galatians chapter 3, down around verse 29, he says, if you are in Christ, then you are children of Abraham and heirs of the promises God made to Abraham. So we see in a real sense, this is not just Abraham's story, but it's our story. Because Abraham is a prototype for all who believe. Let me close with what the Bible says about Abraham in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is that great hall of fame of faith. And it calls the people of God to have faith. It reminds us that it was the faith of Abraham that kept him going. That Abraham believed against what you would see or normally expect, that God could give him a child, that God was able and willing. And Abraham went when he was called by God because Abraham believed God could give him land. Even though it was something that Abraham may not see much of. Remember, he only saw a little bit of God's promise. But Abraham believed God was doing something big. Something bigger than just Abraham. Something bigger than just his generation. So Abraham was faithful in his lifetime. His faith enabled him to trust in God and to keep moving forward. Because he believed God was doing something bigger than himself. Bigger than just his generation. He looked forward to a city without foundations that was built by God. Oh, may we as children of Abraham, may we be made right with God because of our faith in him, not our faith in ourselves.